Listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio for Friday, May 20th, 2016. This week is episode 415. My name is Radio Joe Hughes, and at the controls in Studio F is John. You gotta have faith. And back in Studio C in McKee's Rocks is my co host, the Z Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Hey, Joe. Hey, John. Hello, everybody. Good day, Cliff. This week, we have Howard Wolf and Monica Aquino. We're going to have a great show today. Looking forward to this. We're going to talk about restoration claims management, the S-500 revisions, some legal issues with respect to water damage restoration, and much more. Before we do that, let's thank our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at their website, jondon.com. That's jondon.com. Clean Facts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfactswithanx.com. IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at iaq.net. And Particles Plus. They are engineers and manufacturers of feature-rich particle counters, air quality monitoring instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. Particlesplus.com. Count on us. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products and also check out the iaq training institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com all right let's turn it over to the z-man for today's iaq radio trivia question thanks joe Win a cool prize by out-competing fellow IEQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IEQ Radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Either email it to czalotnik at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show, you can text in the answer via your computer. Congratulations. Doug Conan, Aerotech Environmental, Dayton, Ohio, for the first correct answer to last week's IQ Radio Trivia question. The IQ Radio Trivia question for Friday, May 20, 2016, has been sponsored by Ideas, the solution chemistry company creating unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Now for this week's IAQ Radio Trivia question. Since 9-11, what is the second highest level of insurance claims filed? Back to you, Joe. Good one, Cliff. All right, this week we've got Howard Wolf. Howard uh, has been involved with the cleaning and restoration industry since 1984. He's worked his way through a series of progressively more responsible positions, and he's worked in areas after major disasters since Hurricane Andrew in 1992. 
He has always been deeply involved in the uh, restoration industry as a volunteer as well. He is currently the chairman of the IICRC Standards Committee, an ANSI-accredited standards writing body. In 2001, Howard started HW3 Group, a firm committed to serving the restoration industry. The group is a firm that supports the disaster restoration industry with management administration, claims preparation, logistics, dispute resolution, and technical expert consulting. Along with him is Monica Aquino. Monica is the managing partner of the HW3 Group. She's been involved in the claims preparation and claims management industry since 1999. She began as an analyst and claims coordinator and then moved into claims management and development of programs for large clients. She has managed claims for some of the largest property claims in the country and has particular expertise in the hospitality, complex multi-tenant, and large retail industries. She oversees all aspects of property, casualty, and business interruption insurance claims and preparation for clients through diverse industries. And uh, she's done projects up to an exceeding $500 million and very interesting uh, person to talk to. Enjoyed talking a little last night to prepare for the show. Before we get started, we've got a little music for our guests. Project Manager Baby. Good day. Welcome to the show. Howard, do we have you on? Oh, we got to unmute Howard and Monica. Howie, do we have you? Yeah, absolutely. Great. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. And Monica, I want to make sure we've got you. I'm here as well. All right. Thank you so much. I, I want to start with Monica since I like her voice and uh, she's got a great voice for the radio I noticed yesterday. What? Tell us a little bit about, you know, what, what is claims management well let's start with your background a little bit where did you get your experience in insurance claims well i'd like to say that when you're going to college you know that this is what you're going to do but very much not the case Mm -hmm. you never really know that this is the direction you're going you sort of just fall into it so i um my background is actually in accounting and coincidentally, just over the summer, started working for a claims management company and spent 18 years basically doing representing the owners and doing claim preparation work slash disaster response work. So what does that all mean is a lot of people don't know that our services are out there and until they actually experience a loss. Now, in most cases, people haven't been through this before, so they don't know what to expect. They need a lot of hand-holding because they're in the line of work that they're accustomed to doing. They don't understand how the claims process works, nor do they actually have the time to stop doing what they're doing to oversee the claim. So what does that mean? For the most part, I educate owners, restorers, and all parties involved on the claims process includes property owners, uh, with, and within that falls all of their internal departments, let's say. And they basically go out and once a year typically have to purchase insurance. 
So they will work with a brokerage firm to help them place their coverage. Could be one insurance company, could be a market of several insurance companies. At that point, those insurance companies go out and assign an adjuster when a loss occurs, or if the owners are really savvy and they know that they will experience losses inevitably, such as, let's say, hospitality accounts, then they will request that an adjuster is actually pre-assigned so that there is no guessing once the loss occurs. So nevertheless, they retain an adjuster and depending the size of a loss, then the adjuster retains the necessary consultants. Now that takes care of basically now an owner has insurance. And now the loss occurs, whatever the loss might be, fire, water, natural disaster, tornado. Well, they have coverage, but they don't necessarily understand all of their entitlements under the policy. So our job is to be the owner's representative we always have only represented, or at least I have always only represented the owner side, and we basically use their policy to make them whole. So that means I'm one of the first calls, I get to the site, I assess the damage, I not only help implement processes and procedures for the owner, but then I also help the adjuster package the claim in such a way that I understand what their insurance companies need, and so the adjuster doesn't have to work as hard. We basically understand how they need to document, how they need to report, what the package needs to look like so that we can expedite the request for advanced payments, so that we can start funding the job and getting the vendors paid. Um, and basically we work through, we are the hub of the wheel, as we call it. All flow of documentation, flow of communication, all goes through us. We are representing the owner, but really we're independent. We are there to protect the asset and to do what's right in making the owner whole based on the policy. So we work through them from step one, day one of the loss, up through reconstruction, help them package the claim, which in a second I'll explain what a claim looks like and, and the sections because often there's confusion on that. And we take them from day one up until day of settlement and have their business back up and running. So that to me is the claims management process. And so, like I said, did I go to school for it? No. no. It's one of those things where you fall into it and either you're all in or you're all out because I will say the industry does weed you out pretty quickly. Either you know you love it or this isn't really for you. And so 18 years into it, I'm still loving every moment of it because even when you have the same type of loss, at the same location, there's no such thing as two identical losses. So there's always room for growth and learning and excitement. And there's no, there really is no college education for claims management that I'm aware of. I mean, I guess Purdue has a program on project management, right, Cliff? Oh, yeah, they do. And Howie, how did you two? I've, oh, go ahead, Mark. I would say I've heard that more and more there are a handful of states that actually now are starting to put out courses. Um, but truly, no. What I see is people either have a number, say accounting or finance background, uh, maybe a construction, engineering background. But like I said, for the most part, I find that you, you somewhat just fall into this. Hmm. Monica, I've got a follow-up question. Um, how does what your firm does differ from the services that a public adjuster would perform? So often, yes, we are confused 
as being public adjusters. So, I mean, there are several differences, but among the most, uh, the obvious differences are our services are paid for oftentimes by the policy itself. Now, that's assuming that there is coverage for it, and the coverage would be under, say, claim preparation or professional fees, sometimes perhaps under extra expenses. So there are a variety of places where, where you would look for to see if our type of services are covered. Now, a lot of what Howie and I do and why we partnered up is that we feel that the industry as a whole needs, we need to create more awareness. We need to educate the owners and their representatives on what to look for. And for example, claim management um, coverage or clean preparation coverage is one of those things. If you do not have it already in your policy, then you can request it from your broker at policy renewal and that can be added to your coverage. Sometimes there is no additional cost for it. Other times there is a charge for it, but when you compare the minimal charge to adding it to your policy versus what happens when you have a loss and you don't have our services, it almost becomes a no-brainer. So if, it's, if our fees are not covered under the policy, then yes, it's out of pocket to the owner. Either way, we bill our services by the hour. So if the loss is $100,000 or $100 million, it really is no different to us. We're going to handle the claims process as it needs to be from beginning to end because for the most part, there is somewhat of a formula. I mean, there are steps that need to be followed to complete a claim. So we are not incentivized by the final settlement of the claim. We do not need to make the claim larger than it is. Like I said, our job is to protect the asset and get the building or the property back in service and make the owner whole based on what's written in the policy. So in none of that do we have incentive to make it bigger. We have we simply want to do what is right. Now, with a public adjuster, they typically are compensated by a percentage, and the percentage is based on the total claim. So they don't necessarily spend a lot of time properly allocating the costs associated to the claim to the proper coverages, or sometimes we refer to them as buckets, and in a minute I'll explain what the buckets are. They don't spend a lot of time going through all that nitty-gritty detail and figuring out if this line item is associated to the emergency or the cleanup versus the putback versus code. They really are more driven and focused by the total of the claim and the percentage that they get reimbursed based on that. So going back to coverages under the policy, oftentimes if you find the section for claim preparation, or professional fees, there is an exclusion often for public adjusters. So uh, it's, it's, that that's one of the biggest differences. I see. Interesting. Howie, let's let's bring you in here. Um, first, is, is there anything you'd like to add to what Monica just discussed with respect to the services your your group provides? Well. Um, not really. I mean, as far as the claims management side of it, I mean, Monica uh, helped that pretty or provided pretty comprehensive coverage. One of the unique things about HW3 versus 
any of the other loss consulting. We 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 mix loss consulting or technical services with claims management to be able to provide owners and the restoration community uh, a complete package um, owner broker side, um, which is fairly unique in the industry. In fact, I'm not aware of any other um, consulting companies that actually have the 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 combination of services that we do. There, there are a lost consultants out there, most of which work on the carrier side because obviously it's easier to get the work. You sign with a carrier, they provide your work, and you work, you know, uh, similar to a restoration company program. You you work for whatever rate to tell you you're going to work for. Um, uh, we believe in the restoration, or we believe in the insurance process and the way it's supposed to be run. And, and so we, it's a little tougher for us to, you know, go out there and create awareness and, and find work, but it's really more about the cause of doing the right thing the right way. Um, and that's really what makes HW3 a, a unique uh, entity in the industry. So there are other groups that do this type of work for the insurance companies, and that's a pretty common type of service to provide, but I assume there are also others that do something similar to what you do, and either one of you can jump in here, um, and and you, you do have a little different approach. It's interesting that you have someone with the, you know, the, the insurance background, the claims background, working with someone with a lot of construction and uh, restoration experience, plus your, your experience in working with the standard committees and so on. So I, I see how that's a unique combination. I'm wondering, though, how, and one of you can maybe help differentiate what you do from what, like, a third-party administrator does on the insurance side. Well, third-party administration is a unique term because um, it, it's an interesting term because there is no real good definition for it. Uh, years ago, we would call it an insurance program. Well, that that became uh, a bad word, so it was repackaged and called third-party administration. Um, but there are also third-party administrators out there that claim to be third parties, but they're owned by a an adjustment firm, an independent adjustment firm, or they're owned by a or their contracts are with. Uh, carriers directly, so they they get the same they work under the same coverages on the policy that we work under. However, they're actually contracted or or are brought in by the carriers. So, um, for example, if an independent, there are several independent adjustment firms that have third party um, have third party administrator uh, companies as well. So, if they get on a project they are controlling the quote-unquote representation for the owner as well as the adjustment, which is the representation for the carrier, and both are being compensated by uh, the carrier directly, and there's no direct relationship with the property owner other than the policy with that carrier. Hmm. Um, We obviously believe that that's a a conflict of interest, to, to say the least, and, and again, uh, you know, uh, Monica and I believe in the insurance process as Benjamin Franklin intended it to be. And um, really, if the owner purchases a product and enters into a contract with the carrier, the carrier has to do what they have to do in order to uh, protect their interests. 
and to protect their, you know, their, their bottom line, which I think uh, any insurance company that has record profits, I think, is the best thing in the world for us because it means that there's no shortage of, of cash to pay claims. So makes it a lot easier. I, I, I applaud insurance companies that, that um, post profits. Um, but having said that, I'm all about the free market, which is why I applaud them to do it. And I think that an owner, when they have a loss and they've purchased um, that uh, policy, are entitled to their own representation, just like they should be entitled to select their own store, uh, entitled to their own representation as far as packaging and managing the claim in a very complex world, especially when there are several, potentially several adjusters involved in a in a claim, depending upon what type of claim it is and, and if liability is involved or subrogation is involved, there may be several, several entities, even all the way down to a homeowner's claim, it can get somewhat complex. And the owners aren't expected to know what's going on. Um, I liken it to the IRS. Would you hire another IRS compliance officer to represent you when you're being audited by the IRS, or would you hire a private accounting firm to defend you in that practice? Sure. No, oh, that's really, uh, really important. Cliff, yeah, go ahead. In order to go, no, in order to go back on that, actually, the head of the IRS doesn't do his own tax return. He <laughs> hires somebody else to do it's it. Tough to do. Let's go off script a little bit. You know, you guys are down in Atlanta. Um, let's, in general terms, let's kind of talk about what you're doing there. Like, number one, how long have you been there, and you know, what type of loss or, you know, just generally speaking, we don't need to know the client or anything, you know, what type of loss is it? How many of you are down there? How long will you be down there? You know, when will you be done? And that sort of thing. I think that's more exciting than this generality stuff. Okay. Well, that's a great question, Cliff. The, what we're doing down here is, is one of our business consulting clients, which is another division of the company operated by one of our other partners. Uh, one of our business consulting clients, uh, had, uh, was called into a loss at an entertainment venue, um, and the fire, it was a fire, and the fire was caused by a, uh, um, uh, one of the band's pyrotechnics. And the, so there's obviously a liability factor there, and, and it started the roof and the package unit on the roof on fire, you know, blew smoke through the whole place. Very complex loss because you have a lot of high-end electronics. This is also a, a Bose uh, test site for their concert equipment. So uh, Bose has equipment in here, so you have their representation in here. You have the representation of the band. You have the liability. You have the event liability plus the property carrier plus the business uh, carrier. So we have uh, as many as four adjusters, uh, as many as six adjusters and, and at least four policies at play here. So even though the loss is fairly straightforward. So from the restorer's perspective, and this is where we come in and, and what the value of, of bringing each of these three group in is, from the restorer's perspective, the restorer's got a simple job. It's mostly cleaning. There's very little repair. The repair is going to be about $80,000. The cleaning is going to be close to a half a million dollars straightforward, just get in, get it done, get out, and go. No matter how good they do as far as their documentation is concerned, this has disaster written all over it for their ability to be getting paid. They recognize that because of the complexity of the back end of the loss, and they also understood that the 
owner of the venue doesn't have the the background or the wherewithal to understand that, you know, this can get very ugly very quickly. So um, I was brought down originally to help the restoration company evaluate, help them with logistics, getting the audiovisual engineers in and special experts that, that a restoration company doesn't normally know, but because of, you know, my background and my experience, I know who to call for some of that oddball stuff. And so um, I was helping them get going. And once we realized how complex things were going, and, and I sat down and had a conversation with the owner, and and um, uh, they decided to contract with us for claims management. So Monica came down yesterday. I've been here since uh, Tuesday, I think, Monday, Tuesday. The loss happened on Saturday. Um, uh, they were contracted Monday morning. I was here Monday night. That's that's what happened. And then, um, um, so Monica came in yesterday, and uh, Monica is now taking over and uh, on behalf of the owner and setting up uh, calls and, and taking control of the claim with all of the different carriers involved and and all the potential you know liability issues and the fire investigators and all that kind of stuff to allow me to help assist uh, the restoration and the uh, engineers and everybody get what they need in order to compile all the data for us to be able to um, get the claim packaged up to Monica and allow her to present the claim. So she's, her job really on this job is going to be to identify who is responsible for paying what before the bills arrive. And that's one of the, that's one of the problems, especially in commercial insurance you take a fairly straightforward claim, you know, a half million dollar claim is not a small claim, but it's it's in into most restoration companies, a half million dollar cleaning job is a pretty good sized cleaning job. Mm-hmm. You can't exactly afford to wait six months, seven months, eight months to get paid. But if you've got four or five or six adjusters involved and everybody's pointing at each other, nobody wanting to take that first step and initiate commitment because everybody wants to be behind the next guy. Monica's job is to line them all up and allocate it and make sure that everybody is in line and everybody knows who's paying for what. And and really, that's what the power of the owner, uh, having the power of the owners, you know, we can we can have those conversations where a restorer can't have those conversations, nor are they entitled to have a discussion that way. And if this were gone through a carrier-based third-party administrator, the restorer wouldn't know any of these answers and wouldn't know why they're not getting their bill paid because they're a carrier-based third-party administrator would only represent one entity. So when you get all these other ones involved, they really can't, they have no more power or authority because they don't work for the owner to get that straightened out where us working directly for the owner, we're going to have that ability to do that. And, you know, they have a concert coming up uh, a week from today. And, uh, you know, my job is to oversee making sure that that goes smoothly so we don't kick in on business interruption or the event liability policy. And Monica's job is to make sure that everybody's communicating, lined up, the allocations are set, everybody understands what they're responsible to pay for, so when the bills hit, we can get them paid right away. Um, Yeah, a couple of comments. I think from a public adjusting standpoint, one of the... I guess the criticisms of using a public adjuster uh, is that they can 
extend the time it takes. Like they don't necessarily move very, very quickly. They tend to, I think, take their time. It seems that uh, you folks are more nimble, uh, able to move faster. Uh, I guess it would also seem that public adjusters sometimes may have an antagonistic relationship with the insurance company, and it doesn't seem like you have that type of relationship. So would you agree with, you know, kind of how I laid it out? Yeah, I, I agree. And I'm going to let Monica finish that because as far as the relationship is concerned, because Monica, one of her strengths and the reason why she's, uh, in my opinion, one of the most successful uh, claims management people in the country is her ability to bring that antagonistic and that potential time bomb and diffuse it and get everybody working and writing off the same page, partially because of her personality, but partially because she's just very intelligent and knows what needs to get done and when and how. But as far as the public adjuster comment is concerned, absolutely. I mean, if you're getting, if your incentive is to be paid on the aggregate of the claim and you have a possibility of another policy kicking in, if you delay a week or two weeks and you have a possibility of another policy kicking in and adding to that aggregate claim, your incentive isn't necessarily to get it done faster. Um, it may be to drag a little bit in order to kick in another policy or extend to another layer of coverage. So you're, you're running up your retention a little bit. And, and whereas, whereas our, our whole focus is to get in, get this working and get this done and get out as quick as possible. A lot of times there are limits on claims preparation and coverages. So, you know, we don't, um, uh, we're not incentivized necessarily by, you know, we're charging by the hour. We're not incentivized by making a career out of a job. We're incentivized by doing the right thing the right way. So, um, you know, so the word gets out that we're doing the right thing by, by the owner and, and by proxy for the restorer and the other vendors, the contractors and everybody. We're going to have to break in a moment for halftime. Before we do, and then when we come back for the second half, I want to get into the S500 and, and, and that topic and how that fits into what you do and and uh, legal liabilities, etc. But before we do, Howie, last night when we spoke, and I'm going back to this whole issue of um, contractors getting paid. I mean, we've got contractors listening. They listen to the show. That always gets their attention. Something you told me last night, that I thought was a great tip for contractors, restoration contractors, with respect to getting paid, had to do with when the clock starts to tick on your payment. Can you repeat that for our listeners here? Sure. Um, yeah, basically what happens is, is if any claim, once most restorers, and this is one of the problems with the carrier TPA programs as well, when you're submitting your bill directly to an adjuster or directly to a third-party administrator that is that is owned by that adjustment company, there's no obligation, there are no laws that protect the restorer or the owner um, to, to, to pay that claim or to pay on an invoice. So they essentially can delay you, install you, because there are no, uh, there's nothing there that dictates response time, um, uh, legal time as to when they need to get paid or, or paying on the undisputed amount. There's nothing there. There's no obligation because there is no proof 
there is no demonstration of proof of loss, meaning that they have not uh, a restorer sending a an adjuster a bill does not uh, mean that they have present the owner has presented their claim. And the only way that you can hold a carrier or a third party administration that's carrier side to task is if the owner actually presents the claim. If the owner presents the claim, there are there are federal and state regulations that are time stamped. Um, and as an example, there's a, there are several states. Most states they have to respond and acknowledge the receipt of the the claim or the proof of claim, which would include the restorer's invoice um, uh, within you know say 15 days, and they have to pay on the undisputed amount within 30. That's only if it goes through the owner or through someone like us who's representing the owner. If you go directly to the, the adjuster, those timestamps don't kick in. So the clock never starts running. So there is no pain, there is no obligation to pay within 30 days or pay within 45 days or 60 days or whatever the obligation is in that particular state. There is no obligation for them to get paid. And so the restorer really is, is, and many of these restorers unfortunately pay to be part of these programs. So they're essentially paying to get their own butts kicked. To slow down their own payment process, or possibly it, it, slow down their own payment process. That's exactly it. Yes. And can, can I so jump what, in for just a go quick ahead, please question. do, Monica. So when we educate, when we we're putting together a class on claims management, and I typically use this flowchart more than anything, not only to illustrate the players on a claim, but more than anything to illustrate to the restorers and other vendors that they often forget who they actually are working for because there's this tendency they feel that they can't make a decision until an adjuster gets on site or they cannot get paid unless they are actually giving everything directly to the adjuster. There truly is this misconception almost as though they work for and report to the adjuster when in fact they are retained and being paid more times than not by the owner. And so they forget that there is a proper flow of communication and proper flow of documentation and and exchanging the information that needs to take place. So when we're able, going back to your prior comment, we expedite the process. Well, part of expediting the process is understanding who truly should report to who and how information needs to be properly packaged. Well, when you don't know that, it's why you get stuck in these vicious cycles where there's a back and forth between the adjuster and their carriers and the consultants and the vendors, and someone isn't getting paid. Someone isn't made whole. And out of frustration, vendors end up sometimes taking unnecessary cuts in their invoice simply because they just want to be done with it and want to get paid. It doesn't have to be that way if they just are aware a little bit more of the process. And small changes create far bigger results. So if we could leave them with one tip on that subject, would it be, and I'm, I'm not a disaster guy, I you know I play one on the radio, um, would it be to copy the owner when you send that invoice to the TPA, or how do you handle that? Actually, on a residential claim, it should come from the owner, so it should be presented to the owner the owner should present it to the carrier and copy the restorer on it. Got it. 
so that's the tip that I would say we want to make sure people are aware of. So thank you for that, Howie. Hey, we've got to take a short break, thank our sponsors, pay some bills. We're going to be back in the second half. We're going to talk a little more about the S-500 revisions, how that water damage restoration standard ties into this whole claims management process, and a little more on legal issues. So stick with us for 90 seconds. We'll be right back. And thanks to our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. The Restoration and Specialty Cleaners Association who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Remember, Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Their website is trsca.org. Thanks to our advertisers. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Visit them at legends-enviro.com and, of course, our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at their website, jondon.com. That's jondon.com. Clean Facts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfactswithanx.com. IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at IAQ.net. And Particles Plus. They are engineers and manufacturers of feature-rich particle counters air quality monitoring instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. Particlesplus.com. Count on us. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. Okay, we're back for the second half of our interview. We've got Howard Wolf and Monica Aquino. It's been fascinating so far. Howie, I know a lot of people are interested in the S-500. You're the standards chair or whatever that title is there for uh, the IICRC and uh, I'm curious let's let's go back a little first on with respect to the IICRC's S500 the water damage restoration standard has that historically been uh, a document that's used in litigation related to water damage restoration uh absolutely uh, you know and part of the the IICRC's decision to make it an anti-accredited document was so that it would stand up or hold up better uh, in court as a uh, as a standard of care for the water damage restoration industry. And I'm, I'm curious as a follow-up, the S520, you know, in the water damage world, there aren't many other competing standards that I'm aware of. Uh, then you've got the IICRC S520, which is the professional mold remediation standard, and there are many other mold remediation guidelines, standards, and even some regulations. Does that um, does that mean that in court, with respect to mold type claims, in your experience anyway, that um, 
the S520 isn't used as often, or do you find that is used as often as the S500, and it it's found to be a standard of care? You know, I found the 520 is actually growing as far as its popularity of use, and part of it is the reasonableness in which it was written and the fact that it is also an anti-accredited document. Um, short of a, a regulation, um, uh, such as the EPA document, um, it is really a document that holds up well in court and, and um, as opposed to some of the other guidelines that are out there. Now, with respect to these two guidelines and my contractors out there that, you know, they listen, they want tips, and they want to know. And, and one tip I was given years ago by an attorney who deals with these types of issues was he wasn't too worried, and this is on the mold side, he wasn't too concerned about which document they followed, but just wanted to be sure that they followed one, and then when they did, they kept to it, and they they documented it very well, and then if they were questioned on it, they stuck to their guns and said, look, you know, this is the standard I followed, and this is the documentation, and, you know, does that kind of match what you've seen in, in legal cases? Absolutely. You know, usually what they're looking for at court, when a, when a restorer is involved or an owner is involved in a, in a, in a case, um, what they're looking for out of the restorer is were they reasonably prudent and competent on the job? And how do you demonstrate that you were reasonably prudent and competent? Well, if you can demonstrate that you followed a practice or a procedure or a guideline or, or, a, or in, in our case, a, a standard of care that has been written for the industry, um, that uh, if you can demonstrate that, then you can demonstrate that you're reasonably prudent uh, and you're competent on, in your services, that takes a lot of the argument away uh, in court and, and goes, it's about 80% of the argument uh, for a restorer when they're locking horns to either try and get paid or to defend their actions uh, on a claim. The fact that they can demonstrate that they followed one of these is, is you know, it's about 80% of the argument right there. Okay. Cliff, I want to give you a shot to jump in here. Okay. Um Howard, what are the big changes in the new ANSI IC or CS500 that impact contractors the most? Well, um, the funny thing is, is some of the stuff that got the, the biggest press in the development really has the least impact. Um, the, the largest impact items, in my opinion, are the number one, the fact that we, um, completely rewrote, uh, tore down and rewrote three chapters. The first is the psychometry chapters, which were two uh, chapters in the 06 document. We uh, paired it back in one chapter, calling it psychometry and, and drawing technology. The next chapter, the next two chapters that were rewritten are also, in my opinion, as far as you know, legal matters are concerned, uh, were hugely impactful, and that is the inspections chapter and the structural restoration chapter. And in the inspections chapter, uh, we broke that down uh, and rewrote it so it, it follows the process better. We, we, you know, we've always said that the S500 is a, a process standard or a process document, and, and, and uh, Cliff, you and I have had several conversations about that over the years. 
And really, one of the, my opinion, one of the uh, weaknesses of the 06 document was that the inspections chapter was a little bit confusing. It kind of jumped around a little bit. It followed the process, but it didn't necessarily follow the, the workflow very well. And so it, it does describe all the processes, but not necessarily in the order of the workflow. We rewrote the document so it did follow the order of the workflow. So you can lay Section 10, which is inspections, next to Section 13, which is the structural restoration uh, section, and you can follow and, and flow workflow a, a project out now based on those two sections, and they complement one another. The, the next biggest thing to me is that... Uh, when we rewrote the structural section, um, the, I, we, we kind of went back to where we came from. There are things in the first two standards that the IICOC wrote, uh, the first two versions of S500, that I think were, were important. And, and we kind of got away from that over, over the years. And that was um, to inspect, but, but, but to clean first. The, the the clean before you initiate your structural drying. Um, if you we we um, uh, the cleaning and the use of antimicrobial biocides are in their proper order now. They're 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 in their um, proper order of the workflow now, and and the use of antimicrobial biocides uh, that that language has been. Uh, also uh, strengthened as far as um, when to use them and how to properly use them rather than say, well, you know, try to avoid it at all costs or, or all the warning signs that the customer's right to know. The customer's right to know information is still in there. But that really wasn't standard language. The standard language is how to, proper, how to appropriately apply a, a biocide and when to appropriately apply a biocide in the workflow. And, and so the focus of the standard in the in the 2015 standard, the focus of the standard is on the project. It doesn't necessarily lend itself to protect the carrier or restore or the owner. It's it's written for the project, and so by focusing on the project and focusing on the workflow, in my opinion, it it became a much better document, a much cleaner document as far as describing the process of restoration, and had less to do with, um, you know. Um, parochial agendas of, of anybody that was involved. Opinions, etc. You, I, I know you've tried to focus much more <laughs> on documenting, um, you know, when, when something was recommended or uh, whatever the terminology you used is, um, you, you tried to go back to some other document and find the reference and, and include that. Can you comment on that a little bit with respect to the prior version, what, 2006 and 2015? How often... Did you find that there was no reference backing up some of the information in the old document? Well, let's use there was a lot of it, but let's use let's use chapter five as a, as a good example. There was a lot of good information in the last version of chapters five and six. There was a lot of good information in there. Unfortunately, a lot of that information wasn't necessarily site referenced very well. Now, what were those um, chapters? And, 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 and mainly because we didn't take as much time back then to, um, we knew there was research there. We may have cited sources, 
but we didn't really go back and site source the the origin, the genesis of that research. We may have site sourced a, a a textbook or some other guideline or document, but not necessarily gone back to genesis of where that research came from, what was the scientific basis of that. And so there were very few site sources in Chapter 5 and 6 in the 06 document. Not that it was a bad, it was a, a, a bad chapter. It was actually a, a fairly well-written chapter, but the new chapter is has uh, at least 46 site source references from at least 21 different independent sources. And they're all, they're not sources like you know, um, so-and-so's school's textbook, it's, it, it goes all the way back to university research or physical science documents or, or uh, uh, manufacturing industry research documents in, in, um, in the drying technology industry. So that's where a lot of that research went to so we could find out where the genesis of a lot of our practices came from, and then determine whether that, by doing that in that chapter, by doing that in chapters five and six, that really helped the the consensus body with being able to determine what was standard of care and what should either be eliminated from the document or, or lowered to a recommendation if it was a advisor suggested or even made down to a mayor can having the ability to rather than being elevated to the standard of care because we stuck, we tried sticking to keeping the standard of care, what the shoulds in the document are, to being something that we could rely on having site source referenced um, as being uh, sound practice. Now, obviously, in, in the restoration section, there's still quite a bit in the process that is, that is practice-based. That is, it's, uh, uh, you, you know, we've, it has been proven successful in the field, therefore um, we can demonstrate its success in the field, therefore you know, it, it elevates to the standard of care, but we tried avoiding that as much to the extent possible um, of using should as um, something that was based on practice. Okay, Howie, first, before I have a question for Monica, before I do that, though, what are the titles of Chapter 5 and 6? Uh, well, the old chapters of titles, uh, the old ones, was Psychrometry and the Science of Drying. That was five and six. Okay. We've combined that into one chapter uh, now, which is chapter five, and it's called Psychrometry and um, Drying Technology. Gotcha. And so this chapter is split into two sections, Psychrometry, yeah. which is the relationship of air, and Drying Technology, which is the w- relationship of water and materials. Okay. Now, Monica, I want to jump back to you for just a moment. Let's go back to your days when you were on the, you know, doing work for the insurance companies and the claims management, et cetera. How important was the S-500 to you in your position at that point in time? I mean, is that something that you were, you know, very familiar with? You, you looked at that document, you used it to help you determine if a project was being done right or not? Just to clarify, um, I've never actually worked on the insurance side. I've always represented the owner, just to clarify that point. But I'm actually quite fascinated by the S500, S520, and all the other standards, and here's why. As I said, Howie and I came together because we're creating this hybrid of, as he calls it, 
coming from the top down and and him coming from bottom up and we meet in the middle. And what does that mean? I typically work with the risk managers, the brokers, the owners, and Howie typically works with the restores. And what we're finding is often the reason the claims process doesn't go faster is because everyone isn't speaking the same language. So let's just use, yes, the IICRC standards as an example. In my opinion, it is critical that any number of, as I said, owners, brokers, risk managers comprehend that. I, I know the restorers get certified. They comprehend it far more than we do, even as claim preparers. But there isn't enough knowledge out there, and people don't understand that it's critical. Now, why is it critical? Well, let's just start with policies. A lot of policies actually state that the IICRC standards are to be followed. Well, how can they be followed if there's this lack of awareness and all players don't comprehend what they are, let alone what they mean? Now, another thing is, now let's say the new S500, S520 came out end of last year, and I'm already seeing that there are people out in the industry saying that they understand it or they're teaching on it, but in fact, they haven't attended trainings or they were not on the committee, they were not on the consensus body, they weren't part of the discussions. So how can they actually come out and state that they fully comprehend it and educate others if they really were never a part of it? And at best, what they did is they purchased the standard and, and maybe read it. So my point is, yes, it is important to comprehend them in everything that we do as part of the claims process. Everyone needs to know them, not just the restorer, if we're all expected to enforce it, but there isn't enough awareness out there. And so one of the things that Howie and I started doing is putting together seminars, two-day seminars on not just comprehending the changes in these two particular new standards, also understanding how they affect you. And here's my one example to the restorers. How a restorer responds to a loss in those first 24 to 72 hours very much dictates the course that an insurance claim is going to take. So it very much determines whether my job is going to be very complicated or not as complicated. And what I mean by it is, as again, an example, um, there's a section in the S500 that talks about the classifications and the categories of water. And often I find that restorers get really confused. So they get out to a job site, they get called in, and they start doing things, but they haven't actually properly classified the water um, into the right classification or the category. Well, that determines how you're going to handle that job. That determines how I'm going to be able to position this to the adjuster and the carriers. And if they called it the wrong thing and they're invoicing for something else, then that is a problem that we need to address immediately on the front end. So again, yes, long story short, I find it is very important. Unfortunately, there's not enough awareness out there just yet. Monica, I have a follow-up question. Okay. Uh, you talked about these restorers that are going out there, and they don't know how to classify the water. I guarantee you that all of these restorers have been IICRC certified in multiple water damage categories. They have water restoration tech, they have ASD, some of them have commercial drying, and they all have the standard. Why are they confused? Well, 
you know, I find that interesting because some of it actually is truly subject to interpretation. And, for example, in the course that Howie teaches, I always find it interesting that when he gets to that particular section where, yes, you would think it's very black and white and they illustrate the tables and the standards, everyone in the room always gets confused. So if you put out a scenario for everyone, and in some cases it's actually been some of the instructors, not just the restores, but if you put out a scenario, you always got a variation of responses. And so then the key to me is, of course, not everything is that black and white. Then it comes down to how did you properly document that situation? So I always say with claims, you have to try to paint a story. You have to paint the picture of what happened and how did you make the decisions based on what information, how do you properly support that package? Because when it's said and done, if vendors want to get paid, that check is, that gets cut is never going to be by the person who actually put foot on that site. So the job of the vendor is to document to the point that you can paint that whole story of what you did, how you did it, and what drove you to make those decisions in such a way that the person who never knew anything about your site feels comfortable with your decision-making and will cut that check. So you're right. It's not, black, it's not black and white, and I think that's why, you know, there are variations of outcomes, but then it boils down to how did you properly handle it. And what I mean by that is I've had situations where someone gets to the job and they call it Category 3 water, and they start treating it like Category 3 water, but then the invoicing doesn't reflect that, or vice versa. You, you stated it was Category 3 and made a big fuss about Category 3, but then you didn't handle it at all like it was Category 3. So one doesn't line up with the other. I'm, I'm wondering, Cliff, you know, you your company used to teach the WRT and, and uh, other courses, and, you know, and Howie, please jump in here. But I, I think part of the problem is that I don't know that the courses really – accurately reflect necessarily what's in the standard or it's got to either be that or it's got to be that the standard's confusing for them and they can't figure it out i mean you're right these guys go to classes on a regular basis they're they're typically certified and i'm wondering sometimes howie if you think maybe the standards and the certification side within iicrc maybe aren't working close enough together so that people can make these decisions I'll go first because I think Howie's answer is going to be a lot longer. I stopped <laughs> teaching water restoration technology when the they added to the courses the requirement, uh, you know, for different categories of water damage, for sizing the equipment, and so on and so forth. All of which I thought was made up stuff. And I personally stepped back from it and said that I would never teach a course under these circumstances again, because in all honesty, I thought it was too confusing. And, you know, I, I found myself trying, not being a really scientific person myself, trying to teach really scientific stuff and even made up scientific stuff to people that weren't technical was just very, very difficult. So personally, I stopped doing it, and you know, I allowed other uh, instructors in our company to make the decision whether they wanted to do it or not. But 
that was why I stopped doing that. But okay. how you can jump in and thank you. Well, that's an interesting. That's an interesting point, Cliff. I mean, I I stopped teaching it for uh, similar reasons and 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 other reasons. And 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 well, one of the reasons why I stopped teaching it was I didn't. Uh, I wasn't. I didn't believe that the the. Um, the way that it was being taught in the industry necessarily reflected what the restorer needs to know on a job. Right. And so, so I think that's, that you and I are speaking very similarly uh, there. And, and, and I think part of that is the internal system, uh, you know, in the past of the IICSC, I will tell you that, that, you know, when we, Put out or published the the S five hundred two thousand fifteen the months before that um, at the meetings in October, you know we felt that it was important. The consensus body uh, felt that it was important that the instructors be um, taught about the changes in the standard from the consensus body itself, so they themselves had questions. They could ask those instead of just making an assumption. One of the problems that I've found is that a lot of times, whether it be an instructor or a restorer, they tend to make an assumption on a change based on hearsay or based on reading uh, a Cliff's Notes version. You know, the, the IICRC puts out, um, uh, we, we have published it on, it's on the website and on YouTube, a list basically of the changes. It's a PowerPoint of the changes and the changes themselves and what the old said and what the new says. Well, that doesn't necessarily give you the context of, of the, of the new standard to really get an idea of the flow. So in February, uh, the consensus body, and this is unprecedented, we had never done it before. The consensus body held a, a seminar for IICRC water-based instructors. And we got some pretty good attendance. We recorded it, and that recording is going to be um, made available to the rest of the instructors that weren't able to or, or didn't want to attend. Um, that's our attempt on the standard side to help instructors understand what the changes really mean and what was really in our head so you're not based on, it's not based on some assumption there. If someone has a question, what were you guys thinking when you were doing that? We could have, we were there and, and make ourselves available. And we still, to this day, we have, we have instructors uh, email us and say, you know, I just read this part. Is this what you guys meant or is this what you guys are meaning? It's not necessarily that the standard is confusing. I think we've gone a long way in the 2015 document. I think 06 did start getting a little bit cumbersome. I think we went a long way in the 2015 document to to streamline, to to make it more process-friendly, to make it easier to understand. From a teaching standpoint, I mean, there are several WRT instructors and ASD instructors and CDS instructors and MRT instructors. Um, there are a lot of people that are consultants that are teaching and coaching uh, carriers about the changes in the document that may not necessarily have uh, read or fully comprehended themselves. And one of the things that I find out in the industry, it's somewhat amusing to me, is having, uh, you know, going into a loss and having a consultant 
tell me how familiar they are with the document they attended at WRT class, and this is what this means, and this is what that means, and and you know, you know, you don't know what you're talking about, and 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 at some point in time, I I just have to, you know, sit down and say, okay, I try to pull them aside first and say, listen, you know, I don't want you to embarrass yourself anymore, but. And I was actually sitting in on that discussion. That's not at all what we meant. And that's not at all what, or more importantly, that's not at all what the words say. And, and, and I know because, you know, I happen to be involved in those, in those conversations. The, the, um, the whole point is, is try to get everybody on the same page. And, and I know, Cliff, that, you know, you and I have had several discussions about, you know, some of the things almost seem to be intentionally confusing or we're trying to sound high-minded on something that's really simple. And in, in a lot of cases, I agree with you. When I teach water classes, the funny thing is I teach an advanced psychrometry course, which really has very little to do, uh, uh, has very little to do with the, the standard and a lot to do with just the plain physics of it. And once they understand the, the simple physics of, of psychrometry and moisture mechanics and materials. Once they understand the simple physics behind it, it's a lot easier for them to understand everything else they do, which makes it easier for them to um, comprehend what's in the, the S500 or what they've learned in WRT. And a lot of times WRT instructors tend to make things more complex than it needs to be. And, and, not understanding necessarily all the time who their audience is. And their audience is a technician who wants to just get out there, do the right thing, not get sued, get paid, get their paycheck, and move on to the next job. And simplifying it to the best extent possible is is always key when you're trying to teach that stuff. And some of the WRT instructors are fantastic at being able to do that. You can almost tell who taught the class when you talk to the because I'm I'm in the field every day. You know, as example, case in point, right now, I'm in the field right now, and I work with restorers every day, and I can almost tell who or what school they got their certification from by how they're addressing the loss and. If we have a standard of care in the industry, the problem is that we should be all doing it the same way, but we're not. And uh, or 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 our processes should be similar. I don't care about method. Um, you know, if I if I want to use a foaming method and you want to use a low pressure flushing method and you want to use a a a you know damp wipe method, more power to you. Um, the methods aren't, aren't what matter. What matters is the process, and that we're following a similar process a similar way. And if we're not following processes similarly, then we run into problems. Well, you know, a couple yeah. of things. Go ahead, Cliff. Uh, we're we're running low on time, but we're going to go over. Um, you know, the one thing that I think is, you know, you said that you had the IICRC, um instructor meeting where they met with the folks that were on the consensus body, you know, I'm going to just make a suggestion to you, rather than just letting instructors see it, uh, from a technician standpoint, there then, if, if the flow is from the consensus body down through instructors and then to technicians, they're getting it third party. I think if you opened it up, you know, made it public so that everyone could see it, uh, it probably 
would probably be more beneficial, I think, to the end user in terms of understanding it. Because, uh, you know, who was it? Uh, Einstein said, you know, if you can't explain it to a six-year-old, you don't understand it yourself. And I can tell you uh, the, the same as I've talked to many and, and know many WRT instructors, and there are quite a few of them that cannot explain it to a six-year-old. That, that much I can tell you. Um, but I'll give you the last word. All right, let's... That's a good point, Cliff. And, you know, Joe, you and I had the conversation last night about one point on the psychometric chart, dew point versus humidity ratio, and the fact that our industry, in the way we teach, is so focused on humidity ratio on brains. Would you ask any technician in the field to describe humidity ratio to you? In fact, a lot of instructors, tell me what humidity ratio means and be able to describe it in such a way that the homeowner can understand it versus uh, describe duplicate. And and they're the same thing. One's an absolute measurement. The other one is a calculated ratio. They essentially represent the same thing on the psychometric chart. However, one is simple and one is not. And, and to describe why we focus on taking the most difficult convoluted ratio to to teach technicians versus dealing with something that's simple and absolute, um, to me, is, is, is beyond me. Well, I, I, I'm not going to call him. I, I mean, I'm an educator, and, and the whole thing drives me crazy that you've got 50 different people out there teaching the same class 50 different ways. It's just, it, it doesn't make any sense. And then telling people at the end they're certified, I, I just... I can't handle it. <laughs> it drives me crazy. I wish something could be done about it. I tried to help, but uh, you know, the, it just—it's it, a—it's a long, hard battle. The the start is a good start. You got the S five hundred revised. You're going back to science. You're focusing on the science. You're you're making sure that it's correct. Now we just got to see that uh, that word gets out to people in the field in, in a simple way. I think Cliff makes a great point. Um, you, you can't make it so so difficult that, that a technician i mean let's face it these guys aren't college graduates generally they are people who are out cleaning up water damaged buildings they're not um you know terribly interested in sitting in a classroom for three days so you've got to make it hands-on and you've got to make it simple and um you know if they want to go on to a higher level supervisory level then fine you can get into more detail there i don't know that's just my my rant for well, this we are we are doing what we can from a standard side. We are doing what we can to get to the people from an awareness standpoint. We've, we've published several YouTubes, which we've never done before. We, we are taking that two-day seminar. It's in post-production right now to break it down into sections, and it's going to be made available on the subscription site. Um, so for those who subscribe to the subscription site for standards, um, and really the reason why we're putting it on the subscription site is is – um, value to the subscribers, number one, but number two, it helps us offset the cost of production and post-production of these uh, of these videos. The videos are going to be made available, so you'll not only have, if you subscribe, and to me, that's one of the best ways to take in the standard, because for one subscription rate, you get all of the documents, all the historical documents, and, and other technical writings of the IICRC, but you also get these videos that we're starting to produce, and the videos describe the standard, and we're in the process. The board has approved, and 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 um, we don't quite have the budget set yet, but we're still working on it. But they approved in concept to allow us to allow the standards committee 
to produce uh, a series of videos for the inspection process and for the structural restoration process. And I think that's going to go a long way to Cliff's concern uh, because now if a WRT instructor or a CDS instructor or an AMRT instructor or ASD instructor, uh, you know, somebody has a question or, or they get confused or they may not be strong in a certain area of subject. I mean, I, Lord knows I'm not an expert in every area of water damage, which is the reason why I know who to call uh, when I get stuck. Um, if they're weak in an area, there may be a video that describes that process a little bit better. And, and again, the focus of the document is on the project and the process. I think the focus of our instruction should be on the process and not necessarily the method. And I think that's going to go a long way to eliminate the confusion. Well, thank you. And, and I, I think you're, you're headed in the right direction. I know you've worked hard, Howie, and, um, you know, you've, you've done a lot of volunteer work for the organization over the years. And, and I applaud that and uh, appreciate it. Now, before we we got to wrap things up, but before we do, Monica, I want to go back to you and see if there's anything we missed that you'd like to add. I had a bunch of questions we didn't get to. We're going to have to get you back and, and talk in a little more detail later. But any final thoughts for listeners before we go? Actually, I do. And, um, again, I want to emphasize because it's not like claims consulting and claims management is something new out there, just like what Holly does is not new. There is a reason we came together, and that's really what I want to leave everybody with, is that within our industries, both his, mine, the lines are blurred now, and it becomes very confusing for all players involved to understand nowadays who represents who and who has whose interest um, in, in mind. And so it gets very, very confusing. And what he and I are trying to do is we both feel that as Holly always says, the industry has been good to him. I could equally say the same for me. And it, it's time for us to give back. And what's our gift back? Our gift back is creating awareness so that decision-making in the future is different. What does that mean? We truly both have always made our careers representing the owners. We want to empower the owners as well as anyone that's on the owner's side, including the vendors. So where does it start? How does it start? We have put together a series of classes that we're going to start taking across the country to help not only educate from the ground up the restorers, because there is a lot, as we've now discussed today, that is missing. A lot has been forgotten. A lot of the basics are no longer being taught. And so Howie taught many years ago. He went into what he called retirement, but he is back, and he's back for that reason. It is time to start teaching what is no longer in the industry. It's time to bring back what has been forgotten because there's a newer generation coming up. And how are they supposed to learn? Where are they supposed to get the information? So we want to put that out there. Along with that, we're starting to work with trade associations around the country and help empower them and remind restorers. That's how they get unified. That's how they become a voice. Along with that, um, as you know, how he does a lot of work with the IICRC, he didn't mention it, but because I've attended a lot of the events, 
I will say that they have a lot of committees that have opened up. They are looking for people to be part of these committees. The IICRC is at a point where they are welcoming and embracing not only change, but they want to hear the opinions of others. And sometimes that is the opinion of the younger up-and-coming generation. And so I encourage everyone who wants to get involved with those committees to go on the IICRC website. So Howie and I obviously are continuing to support those efforts. Um, Along with the trainings, we're not only trying to educate the restorers, but as I said, as it relates to the claims process, the owners, the brokers, the risk managers also need to be empowered and educated on what all of this means and how it's all intertwined. So how do we do that? Um, We're going to put out a newsletter that's going to come out later this month. One of, and we're going to try to hit some of the topics that we're often asked about, such as what you brought up today. What's the difference with us and a public adjuster? Uh, what is a TPA? What, what truly was it intended to do? What is a trade association? How do the restorers get their voice back in the industry? So that newsletter will come out end of the month. And then everything hopefully will lead up to, for several years, how his company did a cruise once a year, and it was an opportunity for the restoration community to come together and get educated and spend some time with Howie and and several experts that he brings on. It's been a few years since that took place, but we are bringing it back in March. So anyone who's interested in spending some time, not only with us, but with others that will be on board, it's a great networking opportunity, but above all, again, it's a time for change. So that's really what we're about, and that's what I'd like to leave everybody with, is we can't cover it all, you know, in an hour, hour and a half, but we are out there, we are available, we want to hear from everyone. So with that said, you know, the easiest way to get our contact info is probably the website, which we apologize is under construction, but our info is on there, and it's hw3groups.com. Well, thank you, Monica, and we'll we'll be sure to include that in the in the blog and any other, you know, if you want to um, let people know how they can get the newsletter, we'll put that in the blog and and we'll send that out to you and Howie to review before we send it out. Howie, any final thoughts for listeners before we wrap it up? No, I think my marketing division did a fantastic job. So we <laughs> we. Uh, I really appreciate Joe, uh, you and Cliff, the opportunity, the fact that you guys, you guys really have been doing this longer than me as far as trying to create awareness and questioning status quo. And, 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 you know, there are people out there that, that, that get it. And the fact that your program is an, is an important part of that. Um, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, uh, you guys uh, um, are doing a fantastic job, and, and Monica and I really appreciate your time today. Well, we appreciate well, we wish you, you good us. luck in your uh, new venture as well. Yeah, absolutely, and, and come back and join us again sometime. We we still had a bunch of other questions we never got to, and and I, you know, Cliff and I will continue to cover the industry. Uh, ten years coming up here real soon, and and we hope to do. I hope to do another ten. Uh, that'll put me well into retirement, but it's, it's a, it's a labor of love. We enjoy being here every week and, uh, talking to people like you and trying to get the word out to the industry. So this is radio Joe Hughes saying thanks so much to this week's guests, Howard Wolf, Monica Aquino. That was 
tremendous stuff. It was great to talk to both of you. Also want to thank John. You got to have faith at the controls. Great job, John. My co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners. Great live audience today, and uh, downloads are doing well, as always. Check out the YouTube video. Um, We've been doing these on YouTube now. They're not quite catching up to the uh, downloads through TalkShoe and through our website, but uh, like to see more people check out the YouTube version. They're easy to move uh, through, back up, you know, pause, etc. So uh, check those out when you get a chance. They're very new for us. And come back uh, next Friday. We're going to do, uh, we're going to take the week off. We're going to enjoy Memorial Day holiday here a little bit. I think it's Memorial Day coming up. And then uh, two weeks from now, I'll be coming to you live from Denver at the University of Colorado. There's a microbiome conference there. The Sloan Foundation is uh, sponsoring that, and uh, we'll be bringing some of their excellent speakers to you live from uh, Denver or Boulder, Colorado. Next uh, edition in two weeks of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. 